0: in prayer dear lord i thank you so much thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship your name thank you for the opportunity to come together and open up your word let's pray that you fill our hearts with your holy spirit and enable us to be changed by you in jesus name amen today is an important date 152 years ago today on a sunday Mrs. Catherine O'Leary's cow, Daisy, kicked over a lantern in a barn that was located uh, in an alley in Chicago, starting a fire that took out most of Chicago. 300 people died. Over 1,700 structures, or 17,000 structures, I'm sorry, were destroyed. Um, In damage, in uh, in modern terms, it was something on the order of... $5.5 billion of damage, all because of some stupid Irish cow and her neglectful Irish owner. You can't trust, okay, let's be honest, you can't trust the Irish. They destroyed Chicago. Oh, the Chicago Tribune was very clear about that. Stupid Irish. 50th anniversary of the great Chicago fire. Michael Ahern, the... uh, the writer of the article in the Chicago Tribune who explained all this and gave Catherine O'Leary's address so that everybody could know exactly who it was who started this fire said, oh, he made all that up. We have no idea how it started, but it wasn't the cow. I just needed a bad guy. So why not use the Irish? That's what they're there for. Her reputation was destroyed. On her dying day, the Chicago Tribune's headline was that her cow started the Great Chicago Fire. Now she's dead. Yay. It's a good story. 1921, Michael Ahern says, no, never happened. And yet, the Great Chicago Fire movie is all about how Mrs o'leary's cow kicked over the lantern tv shows in the 80s are saying about how mrs o'leary's cow kicked over the lantern not too awful long ago somebody was explaining to me how mrs o'leary's cow kicked over the lantern who cares if it's right or wrong as long as it fits a narrative we like i'm sorry is that applicable to us today have you heard of Instaface face twit have, have have you ever seen a news channel who cares if something is right or wrong so long as it fits a narrative? Has anybody ever apologized to you and you go, oh, <laughs> yeah, right. Who cares if it's right or wrong as long as you have a narrative or it's amusing or it fits something that connects with you. As long as it rings true, is rightness or wrongness all that important? I love how James looked at this. James said, yeah, I want you to consider how what a great, Forest is set on fire by a single spark. Well, the tongue is also a fire and a world of evil among the parts of the body and it corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire. Words mean stuff and they can take on a life of their own and they can still be on fire 152 years after they were set aflame. Rightness and wrongness are important. Being right, being correct, it's important. Of course, I'm also reminded of what we talked about last week. First Chronicles 16, we were told to give thanks to the Lord. And again, since in the context of what we're talking about here today, it's specifically trying to use that name as his name to express that we know what God we're thanking. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. His love endures forever, we were told. And that gives me hope. Yes, rightness is important, but so is his love. I know that I can live in thankfulness. I can live in gratitude, and I can do that. I can recognize that that thankfulness is not situation-dependent. It's, it's character-dependent on God's character, right? And God's character doesn't change no matter what's going on in my life. No matter how right or wrong I am or you are, I can still be living in thankfulness about God, can't I? Because he... He doesn't change. If only, if the only thing I can be thankful for today is that God is good and that his love endures forever. It gives me hope and it gives me perspective to remember what God said in Isaiah 41. He said, don't fear, I'm with you. Don't be dismayed, I'm your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with, the, with my righteous right hand. In fact, I love how the psalmist in, in Psalm 33 says, Yahweh loves righteousness and justice and the earth is filled with his unfailing love. gives me hope. But it does bring up an interesting question. I love me my definitions. And I'm, I'm remembering Jesus, we said last week, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry, but seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness. What exactly does that mean? I mean, Isaiah is talking about righteousness. The psalmist is talking about righteousness. Jesus is talking about righteousness. David sang in Psalm 7, O righteous God, who searches minds and hearts, bring bring to an end the violence of the wicked, make the righteous secure. My shield is God most high, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge. And he ends the psalm by singing, I will give thanks to Yahweh, Because of his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh most high. What does it mean that God is righteous? And why should I give thanks about that? I think sometimes, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think sometimes, functionally, we tend to use righteous and good synonymously as if they mean the same thing, which they don't. Because words mean stuff, right? (laughs) Righteous and good don't mean the same thing. But we tend to use them that way. We talk about our righteousness and goodness and and we mean it like this. But you ever get tripped up when you're reading in Romans and Paul says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die? You ever remember hearing that verse? He's making a distinction there between a righteous person and a good person. Are you aware what the distinction is? It's important. They're definitely related. They're just tangentially related. They're not directly related. To be good, and I mean this in both its its Hebrew word and its Greek word, to be good is associated with morality, with Something being beneficial or healthy or excellent or God-honoring. It's the way God intended it to be. And it is usually contrasted with something that's evil or that's corrupt or that is corrupting. This is good. That is unhealthy, corrupting, destructive, bad. Righteousness, again, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, is associated in the Bible with justice with blamelessness and judgment and being correct in your actions, doing things the correct way, being accurate. It's put in contrast with things like criminality and wrongness and inaccuracy and corruption in our judgment or in our behavior. They don't mean the same thing. And if you do a little quick lit review, because you might go, yeah, I guess, do a quick lit review pull out your Bible sometime, pull out the concordance and look at all the different times the word righteousness is used or righteous. Psalm 11, Yahweh is righteous, he loves justice. Psalm 103, Yahweh works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. David, uh, 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 Psalm, uh, Isaiah 9, the Messiah will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Isaiah 11 says with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor. In Isaiah 28, God will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. It's about procedural correctness. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Righteousness, justice, justice, righteous. You are following the procedures, you are following the law. That is what righteousness is. Not goodness, righteousness. Now, if God's law is good and you are righteously following it, then hopefully you are doing good and you're doing it because you are good. If you are good, you will want to follow God's good, righteous law and thus be righteous. They are connected. They're just not directly connected. Or I even think about when Jesus came to be baptized by John. We talked about this for a sec in, in today's Sunday school class. In Matthew 3, John tried to deter him, right? Saying, Well, I need to be baptized by you. And, you, and you, you come to me? I'm baptizing people about their sin and telling them they need to repent. You have no sin. You're perfect. You're perfectly good. How can I baptize you for repentance from sin? Anybody remember how Jesus responded? He said, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Because sin isn't the only reason that you baptize somebody. We talked about this so many different times. In Jewish baptism, the idea was this is moving from one phase of life to another. The last thing you do as a Gentile to become a Jew is to be baptized and you come up something different. The last thing you do as a secular Jew to become a priest is to be baptized and you come up something different. Jesus says, I'm, I'm showing that this is a change here. We're fulfilling all the righteous steps, all the political, legal correctness. We're doing this correctly. This has nothing to do with morality, goodness. This has everything to do with being legally correct and doing what I'm supposed to do. I love that this puts into context other things, like when Dr. Luke tells us in Luke 5, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's not talking about, technically. I didn't come to call good people. I've come to call sinful people. It's not what he's saying, technically. In this instance, what Jesus is saying is, I'm not coming to the people who are doing everything right. I'm coming for the people who are doing everything wrong. Related, but not exactly the same thing. We tend to want to reach out to people who are doing everything at least correctly enough. If somebody's doing something too incorrect, we don't want them anymore, right? If somebody's naughty, we want to reach out to them with the gospel. If someone has a gun to our head, they're not naughty. They're evil. We don't want to tell them the gospel. Somebody kicks us in the shins. We want to say, "Ah, oh, I love you in Christ. Somebody kicks our child in the shins. We say, No, I don't love you in Christ. Because apparently there's a bright line where if you're too not doing the right thing, I no longer am interested in you. Jesus says, No, it's, those are the people I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the ones who are doing it right. I'm looking for the ones that are doing it wrong. Either that or we like to welcome the sinner so much that we welcome in their sin as well. We talked about this on Wednesday night. Corinth was so proud of the fact that they're like, we are so gracious. We embrace the sinner and say, go on sinning. That's fine. Look at how gracious we are. But God is utterly, completely righteous. And he calls to himself those who are not even remotely Righteous who aren't even interested in righteousness. And he calls us to stop being unrighteous and start being righteous, start being his righteousness, which is an interesting phraseology that Paul uses. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us or to be a sin offering for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took sin sin's place for us so that we can step into righteousness. To be good is to be healthful and beneficial, being what we were designed to be. And that's great. Not continuing to be sinful. To be righteous is to be in the right, doing what we were commanded to do, not continuing to go on sinning. You could technically be one or the other, but just not for very long. You could technically do all the right stuff with the wrong heart. You could technically be a good person and not do the right stuff, but not for very long because it will very, very, very quickly morph into something ugly. Now rewind a few minutes and and think back to what I just said about Romans 5, 7. Paul says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, for someone who does all the right stuff. Though for a good man, someone who is genuinely morally upright, they might possibly dare to die. Do you see the distinction he's making? Very seldom does somebody go, well, he seems to be acting good enough that I'll die for him. No, He is a good man. Oh, well, then I might die for him. Jesus says, you are neither. Neither good nor righteous, and I'll die for you. Fundamentally different from the way we naturally look at things. A thought I love that's bracketed in Romans 5 by saying, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrated his own love for us while we were still sinners, neither good nor righteous, Christ died for us. And in between that is an understanding of the distinctions between rightness, righteousness, and goodness. Paul wrote to Pastor Titus and he said, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we'd done, but because of his mercy, because God is good and his love endures forever. We talked about that last week. And God is good even when we are neither good nor righteous, right? Right? Because his goodness and his love enduring are not situationally dependent. They're character dependent. And not on our character, but on his character. Your character shifts like sand. His character never does. Which is why David's saying, I will give thanks to Yahweh because of his righteousness. His righteousness makes me want to give thanks. And I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. He is good, his love endures forever, and he's always righteous. Psalm 129 says, God, Yahweh is righteous. Ezra 9 says, O oh Yahweh, God of Israel, you are righteous. Nehemiah 9.33, in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous, you have acted faithfully while we did wrong. David saying, Psalm 143, O Yahweh, no one living is righteous before you. His son Solomon argued in Ecclesiastes 7, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what's right and never sins. Paul reiterated, there is no one righteous. No, not even one. How many times does the Bible have to say something before it's true? Did the New Testament fundamentally change the game? Did the New Testament change the way God acts? New Testament changed the rules on anything? We talked about this in Sunday school. No. New Testament just spikes what the Old Testament sets up. It's always been like this. He's always been righteous to those who aren't. He's always been good to those who aren't. Because we're told in Psalm 19, the decrees of Yahweh are firm, and all of them are righteous. All of his laws, they are righteous. Yahweh, Daniel says, Our God is righteous in everything He does. Jeremiah says, You are always righteous, O Yahweh. Not just good, not just beneficial, not just wanting the best for His children that He loves, but righteous, correct, trustworthy in action, consistently always in the right. Always. God is right. He's good, but I'm not even talking about that. He's right. He's correct, regardless of what we do, regardless of what we deserve. Because his righteousness, if even Daniel and David, who sang about how we screw things up and that his righteousness is there even when we are unrighteous, and both Daniel and David sing about how he is always righteous in everything, is his righteousness situationally dependent? We talked about how his goodness isn't, talked about how his love isn't, is his righteousness situationally dependent? Or is it character dependent? It's because of his essential character. He is always righteous. We screw stuff up all the time. God never does. God never does. How does that affect you on a daily basis? Shouldn't it affect us on a daily basis? Sit there and say, wait, this never never goes wrong. He never goes wrong. It changes things. I love how David sings in, in Psalm 132. He says, may your priest be clothed with righteousness. And if we're not careful, we hear David saying, may your priests be holy, may your priest be good. Is that what he's technically saying? May your priests be just. May they be right. May they do the right things for the right reasons and follow your law. Shouldn't God's righteousness his consistent perfect always doing right righteousness shouldn't that inform the way that we live on a day-to-day basis Now let me do it this way shouldn't it inform if i'm a spiritual leader shouldn't i not only try to be good because i want to emulate god and loving because i want to emulate god but shouldn't i also be just because i want to emulate god to be right Or maybe not just me, maybe Bill, he's an elder. He should try to be right. Sarah's a deacon. Shouldn't she try to be right? Is there anybody in this room that shouldn't? How important is it to be right? Not just ring true, but right. Now, if we're not careful, when I say stuff like that, we can get very perfectionistic. If we're not careful, we can either beat ourselves up for any time that we ever screw that up. I'm imperfect. I'm bad. Yeah. I'm not even being nihilistic about it. Yeah, you're messed up. That's literally what everybody just got finished saying, right? Everybody in the Bible says, yeah, we mess things up all the time. Yeah, you mess things up all the time. Oh, so it's naturally human condition. Sure. Oh, then it's okay. No, it's never okay. It's never okay? No, it's never okay. That's not what you were designed to do. So I'm bad. Yeah. I'm a bad person. You messed up. Oh, I'm worthless. No, no, it's natural for the human condition. Oh, then it's okay. Do you see where we keep screwing this up? Somewhere is this idea of, wait, this isn't what I was designed to do and to be, so I should not do and be that. And when I fail, I shouldn't give excuses. And I should let God pick me up and say, I knew you were going to fail. That's why I died on the cross for you. But I died on the cross for you. Come on. You are not just the sum total of your failures. So it's okay that I failed? Never. It's never okay that you failed. But you're okay. I love you, even when you fail. So let's work on you not doing that again. Isn't that the way that works? Or is it that God says, if you fail, I hate you forever. Or if you fail, it's no big deal. I can't, I can't abide biblically with either of those. We will beat ourselves up. We will beat other people up by, for falling short. But we can forget Daniel's heart. Because I've got to keep coming back to Daniel. He keeps talking about righteousness. Daniel says, Yahweh, our God, is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. We've sinned. We've done wrong. We don't make requests of you, God, because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Even as I say, it's all about righteousness. It's all about doing the right thing, and we don't. I always have to factor in God's grace toward me, toward you, toward everybody. Psalm 145 says Yahweh is righteous in all of his ways and loving toward all he has made, apparently at the same time. If he is always righteous and his love endures forever, apparently he can be righteous and loving at the same time. And if you're loving, you look at your child who's screwing something up and you say, well, they're kids, right? Or if you're loving, you look at your child and you go, no, that's wrong. Don't do wrong. And I love you. In fact, that's why I discipline you. Isn't that what the Bible says? That we're disciplined because God, our Father, loves us? His righteousness and his mercy and his love and his correctness and his goodness and his holy purity all at the same time, all the time. And then he looks at us and and we go, yeah, I can never do that. And he goes, go thou and do Likewise. Yahweh is righteous in all of his ways, loving toward all he has made. Psalm 116 says, Yahweh is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. It's always tinged with unmerited favor. It's always tinged with compassionate love. And and that's the case over and over and over again, which again suggests something about how David is singing in Psalm 132 about how spiritual leaders, how all of us should be acting toward one another all the time. Because righteousness is more than just a strict adherence to doctrinal or behavioral correctness in everything. It's remembering that righteousness doesn't stay righteousness unless it's founded in God's perfect goodness and gracious and love. It's, if you're not gracious anymore, if you're not loving anymore, you aren't righteous anymore. Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Well, not exactly. Then you're no longer righteous anymore. So self-righteousness seldom is. Unless we remember that to stand in the right, we need to do so with gentleness and with respect, relationally loving those around us, even in their unrighteousness, when they're not even interested in righteousness. They're not even interested in goodness. Unless we realize that's exactly when we need to emulate Christ and be righteous and good, and loving, and correct in everything that we're doing, we become part of the same problem. We become the world that we're standing against. Don't we? Our church has a doctrinal problem. Do we do we look at one another and say, well, you're a foul human being for disagreeing with me on this. We hate you forever. Or do we say, oh, I... Talk to me. Why do you why did you say it that way? Maybe I'm misunderstanding you, or you know I just genuinely don't think that's what Scripture is saying. Let's talk about this. I genuinely want to be scriptural. I want to be correct, and yet I want to be correct in how I do it. I, I think of the time when Jesus um, when Jesus gave a parable and talked about uh, it, 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 he was talking to those who are who are confident in their own righteousness, right? And they, and they look down on everybody else. And so he said, Let me tell you a parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. And and, and one was a Pharisee and, and one's a tax collector. Do you remember how that story went? And they were both sure of their righteousness, weren't they? No! One was sure of his righteousness. And the other one beat his breast and said, I know I'm wrong. Help me. Which one was God happy with? the righteous one who knew he was righteous and said, man, that other one is so messed up. Or is it the one that says, I realize I'm so messed up. It's so important and it's so biblical to stop and go, wait, in order to be righteous, not haughty, but genuinely righteous, I need to be humble and I need to recognize that any righteousness I have has to come from God. Because if I am absolutely certain that I am so very, very righteous, I almost guarantee that I am not anymore. God is always loving in his righteousness and righteous in his loving. If you are not righteous, if you are not being biblical in how in your love, your affection for your beloved, for your, your spouse, for your child, if you are not being righteous in that, it is not love. It could be affection. It ain't love. If you are not loving in your righteousness... It ain't righteousness anymore. It's beating somebody to the head with truth. You have to have both. You have to be doing both of these. You have to remember that you have to remember that they are interconnected and they become something else when they're not. I, I, this could seem like a big thing. It could seem like it's like really hard to keep all this straight. It's actually relatively simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's relatively simple. If you do the right thing with the wrong heart, it's wrong. If you do the wrong thing, but with the right heart, it's wrong. Rightness is tainted by wrongness. Don't do that. There is no balance in the force. There's the light side or the dark side. Do the wrong thing with the wrong heart. You are off base. Do the right thing with the right heart. Try to make sure that you're doing what God is calling you to do and doing it with the right motivations, and you're walking in righteousness. But that takes trusting in God beyond just what makes sense to us because you need to be grounded in righteousness. Joseph may have wondered if God was doing it right while he sat in prison for decades, having done nothing wrong. I don't know. The disciples wondered if God was doing things right because Jesus, also an innocent, died on the cross. I don't know. What makes you ever wonder if God's doing something right? Maybe you never put it in those terms. But all of us need to stop and say, wait, am I doing this right? Am I trusting God? Am I trusting God that he knows what he's doing? I love one of the sections in Ephesians that everybody Has read if you've read any part of Ephesians, it's the whole armor of God thing. And I love that Paul starts it all off by saying, "Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power." And then he tells us how. He says, "I want you to put on the 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 armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's not just a matter of getting through life and having to deal with Bucky and Floyd who are really messing you up because." Your shortcomings are really annoying you. Your life is so much bigger than Bucky and Floyd. And your issues are so much bigger than Bucky and Floyd. And when you devolve it down to that, you're missing what's actually going on. Your real battle is a spiritual one against evil itself. Outside and within. Therefore, Paul says, put on the full armor of God, like I said, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand so at the end of the day you're still standing you take your stand this is how you get through life with your faith intact and how does he begin how does he begin with you armoring up he says stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist start with truth start with knowing that you know what you know start with the word of god start with the capital t truth that doesn't change that's going to keep everything else in place With the breastplate of righteousness in place. I love that. With the breastplate of righteousness. That's what's going to protect you. Your faith is going to keep those fiery darts from getting to you. They're going to fizzle when they hit your your shield. But you want to protect your soft, gushy parts? The breastplate of righteousness. Of you acting righteous. Righteous. Right. What's interesting is this language echoes Isaiah. In Isaiah 59, we're told justice, Isaiah says, is driven back. The righteous, that Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty can't enter. That's the world that Isaiah is describing, that he sees around him. Truth is nowhere to be found. Whoever even shuns evil becomes a prey. Can you picture a world where to tr- make a statement against evil is yourself being told that you're being evil? You're the one being judgmental for saying, well, I don't think that's healthy. (gasps) You're evil. How can you ever tell somebody that they're evil? Only evil people would do that, you evil person. Can you picture a world? Isaiah says, Yahweh looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there's no one. And he was appalled that there's no one to intervene. No one's being righteous. No one's even trying to be, including God's own people who were quite certain at that moment that they were being righteous. So his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Help me out. Where did Paul get his verbiage for your armor of God? And if it is Isaiah that he's pointing to when he talks about the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, whose righteousness is that breastplate made out of? It ain't yours not mine it's God's breastplate that you and I wear it's his righteousness that we wear into battle when we face evil face to face you don't rest on your righteousness because you stink at it I'm sorry I know you you stink at it and I can say that because I stink at it if my righteousness were up to my ability to be righteous I would not be righteous When I am facing Satan, I don't want the thing that protects me, the thing between me and him being how well I do stuff. Do you? But knowing that it's God's righteousness, and that his righteousness is always righteous. Always. There is no chink in my armor. The only chink in my armor is when I let it drop. It's not about our rectitude it's not about our correctness paul and james both say well if you actually have a legit relationship with god you're gonna you're gonna try to live out rightness but it's trusting that we've been given god's righteousness to wear on ourselves that his righteousness never fails that his righteousness is always good that even that protection of our hearts is never situation-dependent. De- it's character-dependent and not on our character. That makes all the difference in the world. It's on God's character that never warps, never wanes. Fortunately, God, Paul says in, in Romans two, uh, 30, I can't talk today, 3.20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, which we sit there and go, okay, what's the point that you're making? But you need to hear it in first-century words. He says nobody will follow the law by following the law. No one will be a law keeper by keeping the law. Not by doing things correctly, because you'll never do anything correctly. You're, you've got too many other thoughts and motivations banging around. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law existed to show us God's perfect righteousness, his perfect will that we were designed to follow. There's no good reason why we don't. So when we don't, we remind ourselves that we have missed the mark of his righteousness. And that's good. Because then we go, I want to stop doing that. Like I've said before, pain is good. I lean on this and I realize, oh, there's a thumbtack there. Pain is good because I stop myself before I really injure myself. Pain is good. It tells you to stop doing that thing. that's destructive. But Paul says, now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. A law following that has nothing to do with the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So I'm not saying this is against it. I'm saying this is what it's all been leading up to. A righteousness that comes not from our doing. A doing goodness that comes not from us doing good. This good doing, this law keeping, is from God and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe and who do enough good stuff. Right? To all who believe period. A righteousness from faith, a fulfillment of the law that comes not from us fulfilling the law, but from Christ fulfilling the law for us. And then handing us his breastplate and saying, take this on yourself. Live this out. This will never fail. Please don't fail in wearing it the church in philippi paul writes that all he wants for himself is that i may gain christ and be found in him not having a righteousness that comes of my own but that comes i don't want it just to come from my own ability to follow the law and doing everything correctly no 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 no, no. but a righteousness that's through faith in christ the righteousness that comes from god and is by faith that's what i want which should then naturally be lived out in what i do sure absolutely But even that has to be an act of faith, not something that we muscle through. Because Paul told the church in Rome, in the gospel, uh, in the good news about Jesus Christ, a righteousness, a, a good doing, a law abidingness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. A correctness of doing that is actually all about your relationship. A correctness of doing that is actually about a correctness of being. Which then if you are being what you're supposed to be, and every day being more and more of what you were always supposed to be, then every day naturally is echoed in more and more of what you do. In response to the righteousness being fulfilled, not to fulfill it, you will never earn your salvation, even retroactively. It's been handed to you by someone who already bought it. So wear it. Be it. More and more every day. You've been handed a righteousness, told to wear righteousness, told to be righteousness by the God who is righteousness, who is always righteousness, who enables our righteousness and dwells within you. A God who reached out to you with righteousness when we had neither goodness nor righteousness nor any inclination toward goodness or righteousness because his goodness and his love and his righteousness are not situation dependent even on your situation. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. He is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. So I will give thanks to Yahweh because of his righteousness and the fact that he shares it with me that I'm wrapped in it and he asks me to be it and I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh most high I love Teddy Roosevelt and he once said if I had to choose between righteousness and peace i choose righteousness I absolutely agree with him. I mean, if it came down to it, do I stand in what is right or do I make sure everybody's getting along and is happy? I I have to stand in what's right. I I have to. Even if it causes discord, I I have to stand. Even if somebody goes, I don't like that what you said came from the Bible. I don't like that. I, I have to say it. I have to. And yet, to be truly righteous, if I truly want to follow what I'm told in this book from Genesis through Revelation, not just New Testament, but throughout, if I truly want to say that I'm following and obeying God's commands, part of what God calls me to do in righteousness is to be conscientious and loving, to be treating one another with gentleness and with respect, even while I tell people what I think they lack. I'm sharing a hope that they don't have. I need to do that with gentleness and respect. does not that what First Peter told us? We're called to be peace seekers, even peacemakers. Christ preached, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And his brother James said, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Which leads me to one last Isaiah passage. In Isaiah 32, we're told that the fruit, the natural fruit, the fruition of righteousness will be peace if you live rightly. We live rightly, following the manufacturer's directions for what we were designed to do. How can that not be peace? The natural fruit of righteousness is peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. True righteousness seeks and grows peace. So with all due respect to Teddy, I totally agree with what he's saying, but that has to be God's righteousness, not my self-righteousness. It has to be. Because that's the best way I know to seek truth and to live out truth in my life. It has to change me. And if I wanted to change the world, I have to be based on something bigger than me, something deeper than me. Thank goodness that righteousness is always there and it never changes and it never falters. I submit to you that anytime there's a lack of peace in your life, somewhere along the line, somebody went, nah, to righteousness. I don't care if that's in your marriage or on the street corner or on Insta face Twit, or with your children. If there's ever a point where there's a lack of peace, it's because somebody somewhere or somebody's somewhere. Thought righteousness is at best secondary. I thank God that he doesn't think that way. Could you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you so much. I thank you for your righteousness, that you're always correct and you're always good, that your law is perfect. And I thank you that you completed it, you fulfilled it, and you wrap us in your righteousness. And when you see us, you see your gleaming breastplate. Thank you, Lord, for loving us that well.